Okay, the, the first reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, and it was when God had appeared to Moses in the burning bush. So Moses thought, oh, chapter 5, uh, verse 5, sorry. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezzarites, Hivites, and Jesusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God, of your, your God of your father has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezzarites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the next one is from Revelation chapter 1, and that's on page 1166. And it starts at verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was with the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Christine. And we welcome Reverend Keith Haring from Combatant Baptist to speak to us this morning. Can I just pray? Is that okay? Father God, thank you for Keith. Thank you for his willingness to come and speak to us this morning and the time that he has put into it. Father, bless him and bless us through the words he speaks. May his words be your words to us this morning and may our hearts be changed. Amen. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be here this morning, and uh, I bring you greetings from Combatant Baptist Church, not all that far away. Uh, and I understand that you've been going through a teaching series looking at the topic of God and us. And having agreed to come here and preach today, it was a little while before the, the email with the sermon series and the sermon topics uh, came, came along. And when that email eventually arrived, I opened it with great enthusiasm um, and looked at, wanted to look to see what I was preaching on. I went down the list, God is father, God is mother, God is a jealous God, God is our friend. I thought four nicely contained topics. Uh, and I would encourage you, if you missed any of those, they are great. Uh, so do take a chance to go to the website and to uh, listen to any of those that you missed. Uh, but then it came to my topic, God is dot, dot, dot. Uh, fairly broad, and I'd been told, uh, hang on, I didn't set my stopwatch, I'd been told 20 minutes, uh, and I thought this was a fairly broad topic for 20 minutes, should easily keep us busy. But the second column of this spreadsheet obtained the objectives, and I thought, well, this will narrow it down a bit. And so I looked at the second column, and it said, how is God our father, mother, friend, and jealous God all at once, as well as being so much more than that. Well, we're not, I haven't got a hope of looking at that in 20 minutes. So what I'm going to do this morning is just focus on the Exodus chapter 3 passage. Hopefully that's okay. Hopefully that's not too far from what those that set the series together had in mind. By way of context, uh, Exodus, or the, the context for Exodus 3, we need to go back into the book of Genesis, where 
God introduces or initiates his rescue plan for the world by calling this guy who is called Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that he would become a great nation and that the whole world would be blessed through him. And then a few chapters later in Genesis 15, God promises that Abraham's descendants will be uh, they'll be slaves, they'll be mistreated for a period of 400 years. But when that 400 years is up, God was going to come and he was going to take them and rescue them from Egypt and bring them to the land that he had already promised to Abraham. And so the story begins to unfold. Uh, Abraham has a son, Isaac, and Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And these two sons don't get on very well at all, if you've read the story. Uh, and by this point, we're beginning to catch on that this is a fairly or a majorly dysfunctional family. And yet the, this is the family that God has chosen to use to bless the world. But worse is yet to come uh, because Jacob has uh, 12 sons through four different women. He has four, uh, six sons with uh, Leah, the wife that he doesn't love. He has two sons uh, with his uh, wife, Rachel, whom he does love. And there's also two sons with Leah's servant and two sons with Rachel's servant. And these two wives are in bitter conflict uh, with each other. It's quite an interesting story, uh, and you'll find it in the book of Genesis. And yet these 12 sons are going to head up the 12 tribes of Israel. One of these sons is a guy called Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. And as a result of Joseph's exploits, this whole family ends up in the land of Egypt. And the book of Genesis ends with this family now, a total of about 70 people with the, the sons and their wives and their, their children. Uh, they end up in Egypt and Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. And then we turn over the page uh, into the book of Exodus and 400 years has gone past in that turning of the page. The family has multiplied greatly uh, and they are indeed being oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians as God had already mentioned. And then in Exodus chapter 2 we're introduced to this guy Moses. And within the course of one chapter, Moses escapes death. He's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He becomes a prince of Egypt. He murders somebody, becomes a fugitive, runs away to the desert, becomes a shepherd, gets married, and becomes a father. And meanwhile, back in Egypt, the people of Israel are crying out to God. They're crying out to God in their slavery. And God hears their cry. God remembers the promise that he had made to Abraham. Not that God had ever forgotten what he had promised to Abraham, but now is the time that God is going to act. And that brings us up uh, to where we read today from Exodus chapter 3, brings us up to date. And at this point in the story, Moses is about 80 years old. Names in the Bible are extremely important. Uh, and God often changes people's names. Abraham became Abraham. Jacob, who we heard about just now, was eventually to become Israel. And names in the Bible are extremely significant. They're much more significant than often names have within our culture today. 
And in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asked God, what is your name? And God answers in a not totally clear way. Uh, but of this phrase, I am who I am, uh, in verse 14, one of the commentaries I looked at this week said, these three Hebrew words are among the most discussed of any in the Old Testament. And there's not always agreement uh, in what people say about them. It's almost as if in God's response to Moses' question, what is your name? God answers, deliberately answers, in a way which leaves Moses with more questions than answers. Which part of this is actually God's name? And what does it mean anyway? It's almost as if God wants Moses to understand that God is beyond understanding. You might try and understand me, but you'll never be able to understand me. You won't better put me into a box. I'm not going to fit into your systematic theology. But we can learn more about God from this story in Exodus chapter 3. First point I want to make is that God knows us by name. I wonder how you respond to the idea that God knows you by name. I went to a large secondary school with about 1,800 pupils and I'm fairly sure that the head teacher had no idea who I was for the whole time I was there. I did well but I wasn't outstanding but more importantly I never got into any serious trouble. Uh, and usually if the head teacher knows your name it's because you're in serious trouble. And our human experiences and our human relationships will have a big impact on how we understand God. So last week, uh, you looked at God as friend. And the chances are that your human friendships shape the way that you think about God as your friend. Suppose an extreme example, uh, maybe you've been massively let down in the past by a best friend, someone that you really trusted. And there's a chance that subconsciously that might have an impact on the way that you view God as friend. Yes, you believe that God is your friend. But at the back of your mind, there is this nagging thought that when it really counts, he's going to let you down. Because that's your experience of friends in the past. You're never able to fully trust yourself to him because he might just let me down. And so for some of us, this idea that God knows our name is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, he knows our name because we're always in trouble. And he's got his eye on us to make sure that we stay in line. My youngest daughter is called Anastasia, but she's always been known as Annie, except when she's in trouble. And so if she hears Anastasia, then she knows that it's not a good thing from her perspective. Or maybe we don't believe that God knows our name. Our experience is that I'm invisible. I go to work, I'm insignificant, no one ever notices that I'm here. Why should God know my name? No one else knows much about me. But God does know your name. God knows your name because he made you and he loves you. He wants the very best for you and therefore God knows us by name. Secondly, God is holy. But I mean, that could be a sermon series in its own right. Um, but this holiness has got to do with God's greatness. It's got to do with his uniqueness, his power, his purity, uh, his goodness. Um, throughout the Bible, we read about this thing called sin. These, those things that we do and think 
uh, that are in line with God's will, those attitudes that we have that mean that we are not holy. And within that context, God's holiness is dangerous. Indeed, God's holiness is deadly. For sin cannot survive in the presence of God. And so Moses has to stay where he is. God says, don't come any closer. And he instinctively hides his face from God. But an understanding that God's holiness is dangerous shouldn't lead us to the conclusion that therefore God is unapproachable. In the Old Testament, we have the tabernacle and we have later the temple. And at the center of the tabernacle and the temple is the Holy of Holies, that place where God himself dwells. And that's the place that only one person, the high priest, can go only on one day in the year. And he has to carefully prepare himself before he goes in, in case he dies in the presence of God. But then outside the, holy, the, most, holy, the most holy place, there is... The, the holy place. And this is a place where the priests can go and perform their daily tasks. Then there's the courtyard. And in the case of the temple later in the Old Testament, there are a series of courtyards, including a courtyard where even non-Jews are able to go. And the whole point of this system is to ensure a way in which the, a holy God is able to be present amongst his people in a way that is safe, in a way that won't result in them all being wiped out. And of course, all this is pointing forwards to the cross. It's pointing to Jesus. Uh, and how that through Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, it is possible for us to know our sins forgiven. It's possible for us to be made holy uh, so that we can come into the presence of God. As it says in Hebrews chapter 10, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God. So yes, God is a holy God. But because of Jesus, we can draw near to him. And God keeps his promises. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is the faithful God. If he says he will do something, then he will do it. That's part of the reason, I think, that he points Moses back to Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. I'm the God that I made those promises to. I am the God that I said, these are the things that I said to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and Genesis chapter 15. I am faithful and I will keep my promises. I've just limited this next point uh, to God sees. But if you have a look at verses 7 and 8, 16 and 17, there are a lot of other things that God does besides seeing the people are crying out to God, and God has seen. He says, I've heard, and I'm not distant, I'm not remote, God says. I, I am concerned about these things that I have seen, and the time has come that I am now going to do something about it. I am going to come and rescue you. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt, and I'm going to bring you to the land that I promised Abraham 400 years ago. And sometimes in life it can be very easy to ask that question, where is God in all this? Doesn't God hear my prayers? Doesn't God see what I am going through? And the answer to that question is, yes, God does see. God does hear. And God is concerned. But the surprising answer to all this seeing and all this hearing and all this concern is that he sends Moses. I have seen and I'm sending you. 
It's a verse that reminds me of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, All authority on earth has been given to me, therefore you go. And rightly, Moses, and don't forget Moses at this point is 80 years old. Uh, All the exciting part of Moses' life is yet ahead. Uh, Moses comes to God with this question, who am I? Now, this is a situation that needs God to sort it out. How can I possibly sort out what needs to be done? You know, it's very easy to be overwhelmed with the size of the issues that we face, the situations that we face. And we rightly bring these things to God in prayer because we know that God can sort them out. Only God can sort them out. And then God turns around to us and says, well, I've seen and I've heard and I'm concerned and I'm sending you to do it. And so the question comes, who is God sending us to? Who is God sending you to? What is it that God is sending you to do? Because God is a sending God. He sees the pain in our world. He sees the issues in Camborne that are on your hearts. And God sends us. But our right response to this, I am sending you, is, well, who am I? This is a God-sized problem. What am I able to do? Which brings us to our last point, that God is with us. That's what God says to Moses. I am with you. And if we were to carry on through into Exodus chapter 4, we'd see that Moses just comes out with a whole ream of excuses as to why he can't be the one that God is sending. And this theme of a reluctance to do what God is asking us to do is a theme that recurs again and again and again throughout the Bible. But God says, I am sending you and I will be with you. I'm not sending you to do it in your own strength. I will be with you. I am the faithful God. I'm the one who keeps my promises, he says. I know you by name. I made you. I love you. I want the very best for you. I will be with you. I'm going to send you, but I'll be with you. You can trust me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who knows us by name. That you are a holy God. But although you are the holy God, you have, through Jesus, made it possible for us to come into your presence and to draw near to you. And we, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful You're a God who sees and you're a God who hears those things that are close to our hearts. You see them. You feel them. And you act. And so often you act by sending us. And Lord, I pray that you would make us obedient when you send us. That you would make us obedient. And that we wouldn't go in our own strength but that we would only go knowing that you send us and you have promised that through your spirit, you will be with us. Pray that as we step out in faith and obedience, we will see you transforming us and our community as you work in us and through us to your glory. Amen.